So we're going to begin um, with a simple um, confession. We've done this on two other occasions. I think it's really important that we do this probably every single year um, because it's good for your soul. Um, and so I want you to look at the, the person sitting next to you and repeat after me. I believe everything I believe is right. Now look at the person on the other side of you and tell them, I believe everything I believe is right. Now here is the good news. The person you are confessing that to most likely already knows that about you, especially, especially if it is your spouse. You believe everything you believe is right, and it's pretty simple. Um, it's a pretty simple statement, but there is so much truth in it because what you believe, you believe because you think you are right and that you have it all figured out and that you know um, what to do and what to think and what to believe. But have you ever met someone who fundamentally sees the world different than you? And I'm not talking about food or the fact that the Dallas Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year. Right, Marshall? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. First time since high school. Um, not my hopes. My hopes are up. Um, but not, not something um, trivial, but something fundamentally different, that they just see the world, whether it's the way they parent their children or politics and government, economics, um, family, morals and values, but what they believe is fundamentally different than you. And if you sit down and you have a conversation with someone who sees the world different, it kind of creates this uncomfortable situation, this uncomfortable conversation. And I understand there's a few of you who are the kind of crazy and like to argue and debate, but you are in the, the minority in this. For most of us, we enter into those conversations, into those relationships, and it makes us uncomfortable and keeps us a bit on edge. And if you're really honest, regardless of the intent of the other person, in some ways you feel attacked. That what you believe is wrong. And it puts us on edge and it makes us so uncomfortable because they see things differently than we do. And in some ways, we feel attacked by it. The world, at the time that the book of Romans is written, um, is a very diverse world. And it's written to this, these Christians in these house churches in Rome, in the city of Rome. And at this time in Rome, there are probably between 100 and 200 Christians in the entire city of Rome, with a population probably somewhere around a million. And so you have this really small, diverse minority in the midst of this massive, basically global empire, which center is in Rome. And these Christians there in these churches began really coming out of the synagogues. And these Jewish believers, their Christianity, their churches looked very Jewish. 
They were Torah-observant Christians, where we are circumcised and we obey the Sabbath and we keep certain days and regard them as holy. And then you have these converts, these Gentiles that they have brought into the faith that are now a part of their church, and they are teaching them to follow Jesus in the way that they know, which looks very Torah-observant, very Jewish. But Emperor Claudius becomes emperor in 41 A.D., and there is so much turmoil in the city, and it's all aimed towards him. And so to show that he is Roman to the core, he really harnesses and focuses in on Roman culture and religion. And these Jewish Christians are kind of causing a stir within the city, and so he expels them from the city. He gets them out, and it's what we see in Acts chapter 18. He basically kicks them out of the cities, exiles them. And you have left this core group of Gentile Christians who are in the city. And they are starting to follow Jesus. And the people that influence them so much towards Torah are gone. And so they start to follow Jesus. And they start to realize, well, in Christ, that we have some freedom. And the, the food that we matter is not as important and the holy days are not as important. And so we're going to kind of do our own thing. And Claudius dies in 54 AD, and Nero Caesar takes the throne. And while he has hate towards the Christians, he kind of forgets the decrees of Claudius because he takes the throne at age 17. And so he comes to power, and he forgets this decree that the Christians are expelled from the city, and they slowly start to trickle back in. And they come back into these churches that they founded and that they started, that was a part of who they were. And now these churches look differently. And they're coming back in and they're saying, well, what are you doing eating that food? Or why are you not observing Sabbath? Or why are you not keeping these days as holy? Or why are you not being circumcised? And these Gentiles have this moment where they're what are y'all doing back here? Weren't, weren't y'all kicked out? And it creates this, this conflict because they don't see things the same way. And both groups, remember, because what's true about you was true about them. You believe. Everything you believe is right. And for them, Jew and Gentile, they believe. Everything they believe is right. And it creates this conflict because you have these two very diverse groups who are saying no to follow Jesus looks like this. And it looks so different. And it creates this diversity within the church and it creates this problem. And you ask, well, why is this such a big deal? What's interesting about ancient cultures, specifically Eastern cultures, is their honor and shame cultures. That honor and shame directly affects your social status, your well-being, your relationship, your place within the community. And to be a part of that community means that you are either honored or if you're outside of it, you are shamed. And honor in an honor and shame culture is either ascribed or it is achieved. And as Westerners, we very much get the idea of achieved honor. It's what you've earned. It's what you've built. It's what you've acquired. 
And so we, we get that idea. But ascribed honor looks very different because ascribed honor has to do with where you came from. And in these cultures, they strongly emphasize tradition. And conventional ways become authoritative standards. It's the way we've always done it. And we get a sense of that. While we aren't necessarily an honor and shame culture in the same sense, we still get a sense of that. This is how we have always done it. This is what we've always believed. And it provides within that culture this sense of constancy, uniformity, order, and balance. It creates a harmony. The second thing it does is honor and shame cultures determine, is determined by the group. Honor and shame is determined by the group. It's the family that you come from. It's the group that you're a part of. And what it does is it creates insiders and it creates outsiders. Those who are a part of our group and those who are not a part of our group. They are a part of us and so they belong. They are not a part of us so they do not and they're looked at with shame. And loyalty becomes a fundamental value. Right? This is what not only I believe, this is what my parents believed and what my grandparents believed and what their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents, and their parents all the way back to Moses. This is what we've always believed. And the other thing that happens in these honor and shame cultures is position and authority matter. The patriarch of the family matters. Your position, your standing in the community matters. And why does this idea help us to understand this conflict better? Why does this honor and shame help us to understand what's happening in these Roman churches? How does it help us to see and understand and know better? Because in these honor and shame cultures, you need to understand this. It's not just an attack on what you believe. It is fundamentally an attack on who you are. Because if you're attacking or you're saying what I believe is wrong, this is not just what I believe. This is what my parents believed and my grandparents and their parents and their parents and their parents. It's not just an attack on my knowledge, on my understanding, on my theology. It is literally an attack on who I am. And so then the question is, well, what is the actual conflict they are dealing with in these churches in Rome? And the biggest part of it is what kind of food is served at the table? What is the food that is served at the table? And the other part of it is what days are holy, set apart, sacred. And so Paul is addressing here in Romans 14, and he says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the person who eats, excuse me, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise, and the one who abstains, let it not Excuse me. I switched from the NIV to the ESV because it is so much more poignant, but then it doesn't read as easy. Let not the one who eats despise, but the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you 
to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each of you should be fully convinced in his own mind. The Lord observes, or the one who observes one day, observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what is Paul addressing, or maybe more specifically, who is Paul addressing? Paul is addressing the weak, and in this context, it seems to be the Torah-observant, um, Torah-insistent Jewish Christians, and the strong are these strong Gentile converts who seem to be strong in the faith. And he says back in verse um, 2, the one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person, and he defines who the weak is in this context, eats only vegetables. So he's addressing the weak and the strong, and he's kind of defining them. These Torah observant, holding on to their, their past, holding on to their faith, Jewish Christians. And then on the other side, you have these strong Gentile converts who understand correctly that you can eat anything, that you're free to eat from anything you want. But his answer is so much more nuanced than that. It's not just simply here are the weak and here are the strong. He's addressing two specific groups of people. The weak who do not eat meat and sit in judgment of those who do. So you have this one group who's abstaining from eating meat, and not only are they abstaining in it and thinking that they're doing this for God, they're also passing judgment and being very critical and harsh to this other group who is over here eating meat, even though it's perfectly fine to do so. And then you have a second group that is strong, and they are eating meat, but they're doing it in a way that despises the ones who abstain from eating meat. So they're eating meat, but they're doing it in a way that almost rubs it in the face of those who don't. Like you're inferior to my understanding. Because I believe everything I believe is right. And it creates this powerful conflict this powerful division. See, here's, here's where it hits the ground for us. Is I can promise you in a church of this size, there are numerous people that see the world fundamentally different than you do. Who see the world differently economically. Who see it differently politically. In some cases, religiously. And what you believe and what you know is that you are right. And the problem is the person sitting next to you knows that what they believe is right. And in a way, it feels like when you run into those divisions, to those conflicts, that it's not just an attack on what you believe. It's an attack on who you are. Because even though we don't follow the, the ascribed honor as much in our culture, 
we still get a sense of that honor, of this is what I always believe. Because if you attack what I believe, it's not just me. What I believe was passed on from my parents, and it was passed on from their parents and their parents. Because for most of us, it's what we grew up with, and it feels like an attack on us. And let's just be honest. When someone, it feels like they are attacking us, we bow up and we get defensive. I think I've told this story before, but one of the biggest arguments Cammie and I ever had was laying in bed one night, and it was over clothing for a baby that we did not even have yet. <laughs> we, we were laying there, and we were talking about our, our first child, and Cammie makes this remark. We, we were, I guess, pregnant at the time and waiting for, for, at the time, what we thought was Ryan that ended up being Gracie. Um, we, we were waiting, and we're having this conversation, and Cammie says, you know, it would be great to get our daughter's picture, our son's first baby picture, in a camouflage onesie. And, and growing up in the city, and my parents weren't hunters, her parents are hunters, I just stopped in my tracks like, oh, no, 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 no. And I, I said, in, in one of those ways where it's a little bit of a joke, but also kind of serious, we are not doing some redneck hunting picture with our daughter in a camo onesie. And oh boy, it, it shot fireworks because she comes back at me and she goes, well, we sure aren't doing some little sissy city boy picture. <laughs> and, and both of us went to bed so angry at each other. By the way, I did a wedding last night and I told the bride and groom not to go to bed angry. But we went to bed angry at each other that night. And it wasn't necessarily about a picture, and it wasn't about clothes. It was about attacks on who we were, on how we were raised. And you come across those moments, especially when we talk about matters of faith. Because our, our faith is so important to us, and it's so important to us because we believe it, but it's also really important to us because it was passed on to us. And it feels like that attack is personal, and we take it really seriously. And so when Paul addresses this back in verse 3, he says, let not the one who, or let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And the word... Um, despise here is exothuomeno, and it means to literally disdain that person, to look at them with this harsh um, criticism like they are worthless and they have no place. And so he uses this very, very, very harsh, poignant language. Don't sit there and think that your ways are so superior to theirs that you look at them with disgust. And then he talks to the ones who are abstaining. And he says, don't, and the, the word he uses for judgment is krino, which means to sit in the place of God and condemn someone else. He uses these very harsh terms 
that these two groups see each other. One despising the other and just saying, hey, we're going to eat all the baby back ribs we want. And this other group saying, you're inferior to us because we understand correctly. So you don't understand. Everything we believe is right. And this other group saying, no, 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 we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want, and everything we believe is right. And when someone attacks that, when someone criticizes that, when someone questions that, we put our guard up and we become very defensive. You see, at the core of what Paul is addressing here is the tendency that we have to believe everything we believe is right to the extent that we don't treat one another with grace because of it. That we hold our belief and our understanding above the people around us. And Paul would say to all of us, as he would to them, it's possible to be right and still be wrong. And it's also possible to be wrong and still be right. Because at the core of the problem is not the conceptual knowledge that I've got it all figured out, that I know everything. At the core of the problem is the fellowship, the welcoming of one another. Because Paul is trying to move this church, these, this collection of house churches, from this conceptual theology to a lived theology. And this conceptual theology that we're starting with in our Bible classes right now is the praxis for this lived theology. That, that everything we know flows into how we act and we live and we do. And it's not just this application. It's very much lived out in our life. And see, he has a problem with the people because it seems both groups are doing what they are doing because they are seeking to honor Christ. We're, we're not eating meat, and we believe that we're right in not eating meat, and we're doing it so that we would honor Christ with our life. And you have this other group who is eating meat, and they're giving thanks to God because we're doing it to honor Christ. And we want everything in our life that we live out to be about Jesus. We're, we're doing both for the right reason, but yet we're coming to different conclusions. There's a similar issue that comes up in 1 Corinthians 8, is they're eating food that's sacrificed to idols. And it's really interesting because he addresses again the strong and the weak. And the strong, these idols don't have real existence. They aren't real. And so we're not really eating food that's sacrificed to the idols. It's fine to eat. And then you have the weak who are, say you're, you're doing so, but it's fundamentally rejecting these core Christian values. You can't do that. What, what's fascinating about this argument is both begin their argument with truth, and yet both arrive at different conclusions. 
both begin saying, here is what is true. We can eat meat because those idols don't really exist anyway. It's no big deal. And you have this other group saying, that rejects everything we believe. Both begin with true statements. Both arrive at different conclusions. See, we all make inferences and conclusions. And yet we get frustrated when people don't arrive at the same place we are. Regardless of what category, weak, strong, the problem is the way we treat one another when we disagree. And I think in our, our minds, deep down, I don't, I don't know that we would say we believe it, but it's almost lived out in a way that we believe we have to be 100% correct on every single theological issue to be right with God. And we, we would never say that because we, we know there's grace. But I think at times we treat one another in that way. That we have to be right. And if we're not right, we're going to dig our heels in and fight until they know that we have it all together. And, and you could sit here and look at the situation. Well, who's right? Those eating meat, those not eating meat. And Paul, he goes on to address it and even say, you know, everything is permissible to eat. It's okay. But he doesn't let them off the hook with that. He doesn't let them off the hook with this just conceptual understanding of you're right and you're wrong. He addresses the bigger issue with this church, that because of their differences, they can't gather around the same table. Because of the way they see the world, because of the things that they believe, the conclusions they've arrived at, they cannot sit in fellowship around the table together. And you ask, well, which side is it then that's wrong? And I think Paul would say both of them. Both of them, if they are excluding their brothers and sisters from coming to the table. He goes on to say in verse 14 of chapter 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat... Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let you, or so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We're right. We, we know that we're doing right. I know that we can't eat the meat. I know that we can't eat the meat. I know. I know I'm right. 
Paul says, no. What matters is the table fellowship that you share. What matters is the belief that we have in this gospel. That Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has become king of the whole world. And all submit to his rule and reign. All gather around this table. And, and we might ask the, the question, well, is this, is, is this a gospel issue? And I think Paul would say, absolutely. Even though he begins by saying, this is a matter of opinion. But I would say, Paul would say, this has become a gospel issue. Why is it a gospel issue? Because any issue that threatens unity is now a gospel issue. Anything that threatens the unity of the church has become a gospel issue. And we live in a world that says, if you disagree with me, then I will disregard you. And Paul would say, that cannot happen in the church. Because the gospel imagines a world made whole. A world that has been unified and brought together all under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. That, that is a world that, that despite our differences, despite the way we see things, says now there is wholeness, there is completeness, there is unity, all under Christ Jesus. And what becomes a tremendous problem for these churches is that they look across the table and they see an enemy. And, and the problem is within this house church, around this table, where they see enemies, there is a bigger enemy outside that sees them completely different because they are this small minority. They're this small minority in the midst of this massive global empire that says Caesar is Lord. And they're going out and announcing, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king of the universe. And we have our fellowship in him. And the problem becomes when you see the person across the table as your enemy, you now have greater enemies. Because those who don't belong to this fellowship, who don't share the same table, see the way of Christ is an enemy. And I think Jesus would simply say, there are enough enemies. There are enough people who do not see the world like you do. But you as followers of Jesus who confess his death, burial, and resurrection, who, who have been initiated and, and born into this kingdom through baptism and live this new life in the Spirit are now unified and you sit around this table as equals, that you share in this fellowship, you share in this community, you, there is unity and love and peace and harmony. And what he's going to continue to say, he says four times in this chapter, welcome one another. Welcome one another because you all belong at this table. Welcome one another. And he says in, in chapter 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the table. Welcome. Come because you are invited. Come because the table is the way to peace. Come because you are equal here. And it starts seated around this table, this table of the Lord that is prepared by Jesus himself, a table that in many traditions is called a common table because all are welcome and all are invited to come to the table because all at the table are welcome. But I would suggest that in our world, this common table is a very uncommon table because there are no places where there is this unity around the table where we share this meal together and we are one. Where Paul would say, come, come to the table and find the bread of life. Come to the table, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Come to the table because you are welcome here. And despite of our differences, despite of our understandings that we know we have it all figured out, that we believe everything that we believe is right, despite all of it, there is this table. And it's the table of the Lord where Christ's body has been broken and His blood poured out making a place for you. And it is the invitation to come because all are welcomed at the table of the Lord.